0: Well, good morning, everyone. started out well this morning on Reformation Day, singing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, like good Lutherans. <laughs> Baptistic Lutherans, right? It's a, it's a good day, and we don't typically maybe think of this as Reformation Day. We're a Baptist church. Why would we be thinking about that? Well, if, if we didn't have one of those, a Reformation, we wouldn't be here today. Or how we're here might look very different than what it is right now. A lot of leadership, a lot of authority had to go into the decisions that made our church situation today what it is. And we can be thankful that the gospel was clarified and that it was presented in such a way that led thousands and thousands of people to Christ and that resulted in us today being able to worship like we do here in the United States Um, Since it's Reformation Day, I want to read a little bit, reading time with Pastor Joe, from my favorite Reformation book. It's thin. You might like it. You might want to look it up and buy it. It's called The Unquenchable Flame by Michael Reeves. This is what he says about Martin Luther in the year 1521, so 500 years ago. The trumpets blared as the covered wagon passed through the city gates. Thousands lined the streets to catch a glimpse of their hero. Many more waving pictures of him from windows and rooftops. It was the evening of Wednesday, the 16th of April, 1521, and Martin Luther was entering the city of Worms. That's how you say it, by the way. It looked like a triumphal entry, yet Luther knew where triumphal entries could lead. The reality was he was coming to be tried for his life, and like Jesus, He was expecting death, teaching that a sinner, merely by trusting Christ, could, despite all of his or her sins, have utter confidence before God, he had brought down on himself the fury of the church. His books had already been thrown into bonfires, and most expect that in a few days he would be joining them. Luther, however, was determined to defend his teaching. Christ lives, he said and we shall enter Worms in spite of all the gates of hell. The next day, he stood before Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, the Lord of Spain, Austria, Burgundy, Southern and Northern Italy, the Netherlands, and God's Viceroy on earth. On seeing the monk, the emperor said to him, he will not make a heretic out of me. And as the people gathered around, waited to find out what Martin Luther would say and do, they thought, this is our defining moment. Our hero will, just like Jesus did, cleanse the temple and worship will be restored. And Martin Luther said, may I have some extra time to think things over? When called upon to recant all of his books that he had written, to be called upon to recant his message of salvation by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, he had to take a step back. And for 24 hours, he prayed. And the next day, as people gathered once again with the leadership of the world, trying Martin Luther, Luther stood up and asked again if he would repent and recant of all of his writings. He concluded. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. And the rest of the story is he was smuggled out of there and for many years was able to preach the word of God, despite what the powers of the earth at that time determined was right. And Luther led in his day because a greater authority and a greater man cleansed a different kind of courtroom and determined that his authority would be what people needed. And that is our Lord Jesus Christ. When we look at Luke 19, and I would invite you to turn there if you will, a greater day than that day of 1521 in Worms as Martin Luther stood trial was the day that Jesus entered the temple and cleared out all of the perversion of worship and established himself as the rightful judge and king. And today we're looking at this scripture with the title the king's authority, the king's authority. And these verses, verses 45 to eight, which one of our elders, Mickey Sims, read for us this morning, sets the stage. You might even notice that down in verse two of chapter 20, the Pharisees and scribes, the priest, come up to Jesus and says, they say to him, tell us by what authority you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? The question of authority is all throughout this passage. Who gives Jesus the right to do what he does? Where did that authority come from? Why does he do the things that he does? And by his actions in the temple throughout the rest of his time before his crucifixion, which takes up Luke chapter 19, verses 45, all the way through his trial and eventual crucifixion outside of the city. The rest of the time of Jesus' ministry in Luke is spent in the temple clarifying his authority, establishing his kingdom and sweeping in people so that they are acknowledging the king and walking in his ways. And for us today, the point of this talk, the point of this sermon today is that we will recognize the authority of Jesus that we will submit to it. I want to go over the three points that I'll look at today with you. The king's authority to demand proper worship. Secondly, the king's authority to lead his people and the king's authority to defeat his enemies. As we go through this passage, I want you to see that as Jesus clarifies his authority, he puts a stake down and shows people the way that he is going. And that the way he is going is the only way that leads to life. Everything else he is replacing. Everything else he is leaving behind him as he goes forward and compels those who are watching to follow him. Let's look at this first passage in Luke chapter 19 verse 45. It says there, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This section of scripture in most of our Bibles is titled Jesus Cleanses the Temple. Cleansing the Temple. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Uh, What is the significance behind his actions here? Well, Luke gives us a very compact version of this story. Matthew and Mark also include this story at this point in jesus ministry he has just entered the city on the donkey he's come into the city at that point it was later in the evening right around sunset and he looks and surveys all that's happening in the temple he sees the wicked practices going on inside the courtyard but then he goes back to the home in bethany where he stays the night and the next day he gets up and he goes back into the temple And the first thing that he does is he goes in and he takes the tables that have all of the animals and the tables of money where people are making exchanges of currency and he turns them over. He flips all the tables throughout that courtyard. Why does he do this? If we would go with Jesus into the temple and see the things that Jesus saw, maybe to our 21st century eyes, it wouldn't be quite different than what we might expect. You know, markets of Middle Eastern stalls are are filled with these alley full of people selling things, various sights and smells and animals, money being exchanged. And if we would see that in a temple, not knowing much about the way that the temple was designed to work, we might conclude that that's just a part of how things are. Jesus looks at it through the eyes of God and is appalled. The practice of selling animals in that courtyard area, and this would be the outer courtyard of the temple. This is the second temple. It was currently under construction by King Herod. It's not Solomon's temple from the Old Testament. As Jesus entered that outer courtyard, There were all kinds of things happening in terms of these animal sales. Why was that going on? Well, this was a practice that was overseen by the priests. And there were people from all over the known world coming into Jerusalem at this time for the Feast of Passover. By the time they get there, having brought their animals from home, they were ready to offer those sacrifices to God, as was required by the law. But once they got there... The priests had a system of inspection. And if they looked over the animal, and if it was not just right, they could then insist that the person, if they want to offer a sacrifice, to buy one of the animals provided at the temple instead. It was an unjust practice. It robbed people. And it sought ways to exploit the system so that the temple could get money. Another way that this happened was by the temple exchange. You had to pay a shekel or a half shekel in order to get into the temple to worship. But they wouldn't accept foreign currencies so you had to exchange your foreign currency for shekels but the exchange rate was so high. It's kind of like when you go on an international trip and you end up forgetting to change your money and then you get to your destination and you exchange it at the exchange booth And the rates are just exorbitantly higher than they would have been in your bank if you had done it back here. That's the same practices that were happening in the temple. And people were charged ridiculous interest and the, the interest charges would, again, go to the priests. Jesus is angry about this for two reasons. For one, these practices are limiting people's access to God. But secondly, he is angry at this because it's preventing people from coming to God who had no other avenue to get to God but this outer courtyard. I wanna go to a couple of passages of scripture that Jesus actually quotes. If you look again at verse 46, Jesus begins by flipping these tables and saying, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. This comes from Isaiah, Chapter 56. Let me have a couple of verses of Isaiah 56 appear on the screen, please. It's Isaiah 56, verses six and seven. It says, in the time of Isaiah, God speaking, and the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 56 verse 7. At a time in Isaiah's history when God is looking outward to the purpose of the temple, it's, it's not just so that Jewish people can have ordered worship. It's so that God, through the worship of Israel, can preach and evangelize the world. Jesus was was mad because people had put barriers in front of people to the worship of God. But he was also mad because the mission of Israel had failed. They were, they were instead of reaching the nations, trying to build up their own kingdom. This hurt the heart of Jesus. Jesus knew that the temple itself was to be a beacon to the world, where the people of Israel, in the right worship of God, and the presence of God in that temple, would proclaim like a beacon To the nations of the world, come, know me, worship me, the only true God. And it grieved the heart of Jesus that it had gotten to this point. And what was worse, the second thing he said is, but you have made it a den of robbers. This comes from Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 9 to 11. Jeremiah was a prophet, and in his day... He stood in the same area that Jesus stood in, the outer courtyard known as the courtyard of the Gentiles. It was a different temple, a different time. But in that outer courtyard, Jeremiah the prophet stood up and he proclaimed God's verdict on Israel and the failure of its worship, the betrayal of its leaders, and the downfall of its people. Jeremiah chapter 7 Verses nine to 11, this is the prophet Jeremiah speaking to the nation of Israel. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name Become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. This is the sad reality of what it was like in in Israel at that time. The people of Israel were pursuing all kinds of abominations, their lives were full of sin, injustice, lies, and yet they would come to the temple and they would sing their songs We are delivered, we are delivered. Another song they like to sing, this is the temple, this is the temple, this is the temple. And as they would sing these songs, God wasn't impressed. God didn't need those songs. He wanted their hearts. And the reality is, the sad reality is, Jesus comes into his rightful seat of leadership. What he sees is, are thieves who have made the temple into a hiding spot for all of their iniquity. It's grievous to the heart of Jesus. We might struggle to think about Jesus meek and mild. And I think Pastor Sam just last week quoted that passage where Jesus said of himself, Come to me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Yes. true about our Lord Jesus. But Jesus also is totally justified in his wrath. And as he comes to the temple, the gospel of Mark chapter 11 tells us that as he turned these tables over, you could see animals running around everywhere, birds flying everywhere, coins rolling around, animal feces on the ground. And as soon as he He kicked all these people out. The Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus was going around and stopping people from coming back in even to get their stuff. He says he wouldn't let people carry things through. Jesus comes in and what he does upsets the whole apple cart. Literally, the the leadership of the temple looks at this. And the amazing thing is that they don't step in and arrest him or stop him. They can't. Jesus is not only so popular that he is shielded in a way, but he is God who has come to his rightful seat of authority. And nobody can stop him until he determines that it's time to accomplish something different. What can we learn from this passage? Well, friends, Jesus is in charge of our worship. Jesus is in charge of our worship. And what kind of worship does he desire, John 4? To worship him in spirit and in truth. Spirit and truth. I know that we come here and we can sing these songs. And singing songs on a Sunday morning is a practice of faith. It's good to sing with the people of God. But sometimes as we sing, If you know that there is sin in your life, use it as a time to confess. Use it as a time to talk to the Lord. Because we're not here to put on a show. We are delivered. This is the temple, this is the temple, this is the temple, right? The point is, are our hearts prepared? What is Jesus doing and what can we learn? Well, Jesus creates the way for all people to come to God. You may, you may struggle with an angry Jesus, and you may wonder if he is angry with you. If he gets angry at these practices, does Jesus get angry with you? I going to tell you, what this reveals to me is that his anger was not directed to destroy people. His anger was holy anger directed to remove barriers that had been put up in front of people to get to God. Jesus' anger is used in order to bring us back to God so that the space is cleared and that people can once again come and listen to him to receive the words of life. And if Jesus had not done this on this day, then none of us Gentiles would have had any hope. You may not think of yourself as a Gentile. Some of you may be Jews. Whatever you are, there is no hope for any of us to have access to God if Jesus had not begun the work by clearing the temple. Because the temple ended up staying cleared for a few days as Jesus stayed there and taught, but eventually it got crowded and filled up with the commerce of iniquity again. When Jesus was crucified and taken outside of the city to die, the temple filled up again. And ultimately, Jesus clearing the temple is a picture for us of a greater cleaning that he needed to do. Jesus would go outside of the city, being rejected by the leaders, and being rejected by the people, and he would die on a hill outside of the city. And what did that end up doing? It ended up cleaning the sin out of the hearts of his people. For as they saw that work and believed on him, it's a better cleaning than flipping tables in the temple of Jerusalem. It's a cleaning that is applied by the sacrifice of the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. And Jesus did that so that everyone from every nation could come and yield to him and to follow him, to have their sins forgiven. And ultimately, I want to ask, do you see that authority as good? Do you see his anger is for your good? Do you yield to him? And at this point, that's what we need to recognize. I need to go to the second point, the king's authority to lead his people. What Jesus did angered the people and you could see in luke 19 47 to 48 he was teaching daily in the temple the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men those are those are some of the civic leaders the elders of the town who were in charge of how things worked in the temple and beyond and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him this is what jesus effect had they couldn't arrest him and destroy him on the spot but they certainly wanted to try and they started to look for ways to to arrest him, to get rid of him. In the meantime, Jesus spent the next several days teaching and preaching in the temple. How does he use his authority? You know, the, the thing that I recognize here is that Jesus could have, at this point, gone to Herod's temple and ordered Herod to be killed. He could have called down armies of angels to destroy the Roman officials, and to wipe out all of his enemies. But he doesn't do that. He starts in the temple, because what's most important to Jesus is that the worship of his people be made right, that their hearts be changed. Jesus lived in a time like we do, friends, that was filled with political upheaval that was filled with uncertainties about the future. Jesus knew the certainties and had just said that the temple in which he was standing and the city that he so loved, Jerusalem, would in a few years be destroyed. Not one brick standing on another, not one stone on top of another stone. But Jesus, in spite of all the danger and the certainty of destruction ahead, begins with the heart. And this is applicable for us today because that is where we can receive the most ministry to us. That's what we need. We, we sometimes gloss over these passages that says that Jesus was teaching and preaching. But the amazing thing to think is that the king of the whole universe came down and took on a body and lived a life among people experiencing all that they did and walking out what it means to live the life that God intended. And like a light as he walks around. Like the temple was supposed to be that beacon. Jesus himself is the new temple, walking around everywhere he goes. He doesn't need a temple to teach. He could teach out in the mountainside. He could teach in the valley. But as he comes to the temple, it's the, the rightful king in his rightful place presenting what his people need to hear, giving his royal decrees. And what is the royal decree? It is the gospel. Chapter 20, verse 1 tells us that as Jesus was teaching and preaching, he was preaching the gospel. And how important it is for us to recognize what Jesus prioritizes here and what we need to prioritize today. You know, we, we sometimes wonder what it is that we need to focus on in a time when the news frightens us, when speculations of various wars or threats internationally weigh heavily on our hearts and minds. And we wonder what What do we need to do? You know, I I can confess that I can get sucked down into the opinions of news broadcasts. And I find that in tracing down one news story on the internet, I emerge 45 minutes later having read a slew of opinions, and I just have this fear. I can't describe it in any other way. Just like a a fear, wondering what's going to happen. You know, last week, my family and I were able to, or my wife and I at this point, were able to get up to um, ABWE. That's the agency that partners with many of our missionaries that we support here at church and and commissions them with the partnership of local churches like West Park. Uh, They had an event called the 24-Hour Demo. I'm the... The relatively new missions pastor and i say if you can get to that go if you need help getting there let's talk all right they have many of these events over the course of the year and i had gone to that kind of burdened and overwhelmed with a lot of things going on in our world and you know once i sat down and i caught a vision for what they were doing over the course of 24 hours of presenting their ministry and what missionaries are doing around the world and the cause of the gospel despite the challenges of covid and the challenges of politics internationally around the world, that Jesus still rules from heaven. And you know, I didn't check any news sources, any headlines, for about three days. And I was refreshed. And you know what, I came back from that, and I found out, you know, the stories kept churning out. And number one, I wasn't aware of them. They happened without me checking in on them. And there wasn't anything I could do about them anyway if I tried. But I go back to what the people were doing in this text. And this is the main point for us. What were the people doing as they listened to Jesus? They were hanging on his words. Literally in the Greek, they were hanging on his lips. You know, they were just like trying to open it up more. Tell us more. Speak, Lord. We've been waiting for you. Do you get that? Kind of sense in hearing the gospel. The good news that the God of the universe created you, that you rebelled, that you are guilty of sin before a holy God and you cannot make it right, but that God sent his Son to take on your sin and to die in your place and to be punished for your iniquities, and that you, by God's grace, get the transfer of God's record of righteousness. Attached to your character, and you did nothing to earn it, you simply must repent of your sin and self-mastery and turn to God and trust in Him. Jesus is the authority that preaches that message and says, Repent, for the good news is here. I think back in our time in Beijing, you know, the kids' ministry in our church since there were some Australians, they played this album for the kids called J is for Jesus. You know, the, the musical quality is just so-so, but we, we actually got that CD and we kept playing it over the years because the kids liked it and there was a song on there called Jesus is the Boss. They liked that one. And you know, and it, it was instructive for them. You know, a lot of times, you know, we, we have this sense in our hearts, well, so-and-so is not the boss of me. And I think from the earliest age by Just the the nature that we have. A lot of us buck authority, but the kids, you know, when they when they get into that sense of you know saying and asserting themselves in ways that are not the healthiest, you know, we often ask them, "Are you the boss?" They say no. But we ask them, "Am I, as the dad or the mom, am I the boss?" And they they say no, and they're right. I said, "So who's the boss?" It's Jesus. Yes, Jesus is the boss. Are your feelings the boss? No. Your thoughts aren't the boss? No. And all bosses get their authority from Jesus, right? Yeah. So Jesus is the king. And we do what we do because we listen to him. Because he loves us. Because he has the right to tell us what to do. It's a good message. And we all need that. My friends... It's possible that in this time period, we can cut through the haze of everything going on in our world by hanging on every word of Jesus. I would encourage you to do that. What does that mean for us? Well, first of all, prioritize the Lord Jesus, that he is worthy of devotion. He is worthy of your devotion. The people in this time period, in that Passover week, the thousands and the thousands who were there, some of them camping in tents right outside of the temple, some of them on the outskirts of town because the hotels were filled up. They would get up early, 4, 5 a.m., and they would go to the temple because that's where Jesus was already, prioritizing the preaching and the teaching of his kingdom. And they would sit there and they would listen. And I think if we're right before the Lord and if our thoughts will be prioritized and made right for the day, so that we can take in all the onslaught of other information rightly and we can assimilate it and file it in the right ways and glorify the Lord, we need to prioritize Jesus and meet with him. His words are precious and it's our joy to hang on every one of them. But I would ask you, what words dominate your thoughts? What words dominate your your thoughts. You know, you only have a few minutes in here on a Sunday morning, it might feel really long when we're preaching, (laughs) but it's really only a few minutes. That really has, but just a minuscule effect on your spiritual life throughout the week. Unless you are taking responsibility to assess, you're like, what am I listening to? What voices are predominating speaking into my ears, the one thing we can be certain of is that Jesus speaks truth. Jesus has the words of life. And turning to him, making him the priority, is what we need to prioritize even now. But I would also say to all of us who use authority, let's do so by lining up under the king's authority. You know, being an angry dad being a pushy boss, being a dictatorial pastor, being an unjust civic leader. If you profess to know Jesus, these are not the appropriate way to use authority. If any of us as parents, husbands, pastors, employers, Leaders in our city, if we have authority, it's been given to us by Jesus. His authority is to step into situations and to use the wisdom of God. His authority is to step into situations and to clear things out from the people so that people can have access to God. Are we using our authority, leaders here, in those ways? Are we stepping into situations that are relatively uncomfortable for us? because the people in front of us are precious to us, and we would rather clear things out so that there is nothing hindering them from having the access to God. We now walk around with the authority that has been delegated to us by the king. We take the worship of the temple wherever we go. We call on people to come and to know Jesus. Authority rightly used points people back to the ultimate authority, Jesus Christ. Do you use your authority in that way? Jesus is the boss. Finally today, Jesus' authority, the king's authority to defeat his enemies. We won't spend as much time on this. This passage actually goes along with the next sections in Luke chapter 20. But because it focuses still on this issue of authority, it's a good way to bridge chapter 20 and to know a little bit more about what's to come from this point on in luke the controversy intensifies and the religious leaders of israel look for more and more ways to trap jesus so in this case they come up to him with their question and they ask him that's really not a question they just it's a command tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority Right, the mind of a, of a rabbi, of a Pharisee, of a priest was all organized underneath who said what and who had the authority to say what. They would rarely say anything like, the Lord says this, because there were too many other teachers who they valued as more important even than themselves, and they would say, oh, well, you know, Rabbi Cushman says this, or Rabbi Joseph says Prefers to say things this way. Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, I say to you. Jesus comes on the scene and he says, This is the will of God. He doesn't go back and lean on anybody else's authority. And what bothers these guys the most is that Jesus has come on into the temple, turned over the temple tables, and then just gone about like he owns the place. Jesus doesn't really give a thought about them. You know, they're positioning themselves as his enemies. He's reached out to them many times. And each time he's done so, they have further solidified their position and hardened their hearts against him. And the reality is Jesus does own the place. He doesn't need to check in with them. He doesn't need to give them his itinerary or agenda. They are welcome to come and submit but they come with a question really a command and Jesus doesn't answer it he instead flips it back to them and I think of that proverb proverb chapter 26 verse 5 which says answer a fool according to his folly lest he be wise in his own eyes there are two proverbs back to back where one says don't answer a fool according to his folly lest you be like him in his sin Then there's the other that says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. I've often wondered, how do you do that? I mean, situations with people are tricky when you're trying to talk with them and they're really trying to trap you. Man, I would love to be able just to flip it back to them. You know, that's partly my flesh. You know, hey, you want to trap me? Huh? I'm clever. (laughs) But here's the thing. We want to be able to defend ourselves in, in conversations, not to make ourselves look good, but to help other people cut through the barriers they themselves have put up to God. To be able to do that is growth in wisdom. It's a good thing. And I see Jesus doing it here. Jesus flips the question back to them. And he says, okay, I'm going to ask you a question first, and if you answer my question, then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus said, I will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And you might think it's weird, and what is Jesus talking about? Jesus is going way back to to think again about the baptism that John the Baptist did at the beginning of Luke. John the Baptist was this revolutionary figure that appeared on the scene, doing things outside of the religious establishment, and thousands of people would go to him and line up to be baptized in the name of God under the ministry of John. And the Pharisees would go out there and they would look on with scorn at what was happening. And they never, they never gave an official declaration either for what John was doing or against what John was doing. And now Jesus knows that and he brings it up to them again. And here's the principle. If you reject the light that you have, you're not going to respond to further light. Jesus goes back to the light they had and urges them to reckon with it. Now, the leaders, as they hear this question, they go back and they huddle together and we're let into their thinking. And they say, "Ah, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet So what do they do? They go back to Jesus and they say, we're agnostic. (laughs) We don't know, we don't know. And Jesus responds to them, then I'm not gonna tell you by what authority I do these things. Now he would go on preaching and it's not as if he was hiding what he was doing. His message was very clear. He was the king. He was the Lord who appeared suddenly in his temple. The book of Malachi prophesied this, and if they had been expecting him, they would have been ready for his arrival. What are we to make of this? What are we we to learn here? Well, first of all, Jesus has many enemies. Jesus has many enemies, but he triumphs over all of them. He triumphs over all of them. It may seem that at times, when we think about the persecution of God's people around the world, when we think about the struggles in places like Myanmar, when we think about the troubles throughout Asia and South America, we might conclude that there is a limit to the power of the king. But wait for it. Because justice will come. God is not blind to the oppression of his people. And in his plan, even now, he has a greater purpose for this time period of history than mere survival and mere getting by. The victory of Jesus looks a bit different right now than it may look someday. But through his own death, and even sometimes through the death of many around this globe, Even the enemies come to know Christ. I got done reading a passage in Acts with my family this past week, and I noticed at the end of a a section where Peter and John and the other apostles were beaten and, and persecuted, it said that they went out and continued preaching the gospel, and then many of the priests who had been involved in their beating ended up coming to Christ. There is a way that Jesus defeats his enemies, and the defeat of his enemies looks like the people of God with the authority of Jesus going out to bear witness with the knowledge that although Jesus has many enemies, he defeats them all, either by bringing them to the point of brokenness and repentance or someday judging them because of the hardness of their hearts. And I would say for us today, not even condemnation of men, or their great authority to do us wrong, or even take our lives, can stop the work of Jesus. In my flesh, I don't want it to be that way. And I have a fear at times that I would be called on to give my life for the cause of Christ. But at the same time, I yield myself to the King, that whatever way he chooses, is best and I have this knowledge that I and you are as indestructible as Jesus on the day of cleansing the temple until such a time that the Lord Jesus determines that it's time for us to go home are we about his priorities and his kingdom business and finally we have to acknowledge that the kingdom was shut out for these men who refused to submit to Jesus. How awful would it be, my friends, if you today have heard the gospel so often that you leave here today and your heart becomes hardened from having heard it again and not yielded to Jesus. Today, the book of Hebrews says, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Don't look at this as just another time to hear the gospel. Look at it as a time to repent and to believe on the Christ. To yield to your king. Some of you today might, might even hear this and say, today I have followed Jesus and I want to renew before him my confidence in him. That I trust him no matter what, that he is good, that even in his anger, it draws me in because he cleared the way for me to get to my God. Praise the name of the Lord our God. And for those of you who may think, today I want that news, I want that king for myself, then I would encourage you that in this time of singing, in need of grace, that you would that you would turn to Jesus, that you would believe the promise that he has died in your place for all of your sins, that you would acknowledge that you're a terrible boss of your life and that you have used your delegated authority to make the lives of others hard and that you've complicated the mess of your own sin by further mistakes. But do you trust Jesus that he loves you? And that he has given himself in your place the king who has all authority to forgive to save and to lead you father we thank you and we do pray that as we sing a final song that our hearts would yield to the authority of the king that we would yield to the king himself we are your people thank you for loving us thank you for leading us we trust you to defeat all your enemies either through conversion or through judgment. And we desire to be a part of that. And Lord, shape our hearts so that we respond to you as you desire today. In Jesus' name, amen.